Okay? All right. So if you have your Bibles, I'm reading out of the NIV before Pastor Nick comes up to preach. And we have a lot to read today that's really good. We're going to start at Romans chapter 2, verse 17, and read all of chapter 3 as well. All right. So please stand as we honor God in the reading of his word. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and brag about your relationship to God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of infants, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that you should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who brag about the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Circumcision has value if you observe the law. But if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. If those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you who, even though you have the written code and circumcision, are a lawbreaker. A man is not a Jew if he is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not by the written code. Such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. All right, chapter 3. What advantage, then, is there in being a Jew, or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, they have been entrusted with the very words of God. What if some did not have faith? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every man a liar, as it is written, so that you may be proved right in your words and prevail in your judging. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I am using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue If my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as we are being slanderously reported as saying, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result. Their condemnation is deserved. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. 
There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. But now, a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. The righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ in, to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice, because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just, and the one who justifies the man who has faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. On what principle? On that of observing the law. No, but on that of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too. Since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. You may be seated. Mike deserves a medal. I, next week, we'll, uh, we'll have an intermission during our scripture reading. And you can all go get drinks and our reader can... Uh, can quench their thirst. It'll be a good opportunity. Uh, no, it's good to hear the scriptures read out loud, isn't it? I think I've said it m numerous times. This is the way the scriptures were intended to be heard, and so it's important that we hear them read together in community, in, in context. Uh, we're going to read the entirety of the book of Romans from, you know, a couple weeks ago all the way down through Thanksgiving. And while it might feel like a bit of a long thing and it might test your attention spans a little bit, I just think it's such a healthy thing. You know, Paul commands Timothy. He commands Timothy in his letter to Timothy, do not neglect the public reading of Scripture. He tells Timothy this. And part of, I think, the problem in the Western church is we preach on the Scriptures, but we don't often hear the Scriptures read publicly. And it's an important thing to do. So, uh, that was my non-apology apology for reading large sections of scripture in front of all of you. Now, before we get into today, I just want to draw attention to two things. 
First, uh, this is October, which is great because it's my favorite month of the year and for many reasons. Uh, but the other thing, the other reason it's great is we have a new book of the month this uh, month, which is by Tim and Kathy Keller. It's called The Meaning of Marriage. It's one of the best books on marriage I've ever read, and I would encourage everybody uh, who's in the room who is married or intending to be married or anything, if you any relationship to marriage, which is all of us, you should grab this book and you should read it. It's a really, really important book. Um, and there are things in it that I just think are just vitally, vitally important. And there are a couple things that I actually disagree with, but we, like in every single book that uh, I, I, uh, I recommend here. But mo for the most part, it's just a tremendous work. So uh, you can pick that up in the lobby and you can, if you have cash, you can put it in the, the offering box. And if not, you can uh, give online and that'll, that'll go there as well. Um, the last thing is we have these beautiful mugs. Oh, it's great. Uh, and if you would like one of these, if you, if you call Grace Community Church your home and you would like one of those, you can pick one of those up for 15 bucks in the lobby as well. All right? Okay, good. Now, let's get into it, shall we? Is God faithful to his promises? Can God be trusted? See? For Christians in the room who have a relationship with Jesus, our faith is predicated upon being able to answer that question in the affirmative, right? Yes. Yes is the answer to that question. For those of us who've committed our lives to Jesus, part of that commitment is a declaration of our trust in him. This is one of the first things we say when we commit our life to Jesus. We say, Lord, I trust you with my life. But we also know, if you're a human being in the room, we know that trust is also a process, isn't it? There is a distance between what we can affirm with our mouths and believe in our hearts and what we take into the core of our being, right? What we believe in the part of us that controls how we respond in our day-to-day -day lives, right? Now, if we totally believed that God was good and that he could be trusted, think of all of the things in our daily lives that would be different. Think about how different your emotional life would be on an average day if you had a settled assurance at the core of your being in God's trustworthiness, that your life was safe within his hands. It would transform the way we go about our daily lives, wouldn't it? It would transform the way we experience the things that happen to us on a daily basis. It would transform the way, just for instance, the way we worry, right? Tim Keller, again, has said that when we worry, we are saying, in effect, I know the way that my life is supposed to go, and God's not getting it right, right? Functionally, that's what we're saying. And I think that that is most of us most of the time, right? When we, when we encounter something that just causes a bit of strain in our interior life. But if we believed that God was truly good, could be trusted, well, then our lives, when they take a little jag or something doesn't go the way that we think it's supposed to go, we could collect ourselves, right? And we could, we could come back to the centered reality of our trust in Jesus, and we could know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we were safe, and that 
Nothing could take us out from under the loving hand of our Father. And the, the response then to difficult situations in our lives would not be worry, but rather rest. Rest, even in the moments of discomfort, pain, uncertainty. Trust is the bedrock of any healthy relationship, isn't it? Again, for those of you in the room who are married, you know this. And without trust in a relationship, whether between friends or especially between marriage partners, or especially, especially in our relationship with Jesus, without trust, a lack of trust yields a kind of struggle, a kind of strain. It becomes difficult to connect. If you don't trust Jesus, it is inherently difficult to, to connect with Jesus. But a settled confidence, a settled confidence in the trustworthiness of another leads to a kind of relational health and peace. This is what a settled confidence or trust in another leads to. Now, we know in any of our human relationships, 100% trustworthiness is not possible. Any human we are in relationship with is imperfect just like we are, right? And while trust can be built and developed and grow over time, it will never be perfect. It is possible to build trust in our earthly relationships in a way that helps us to connect deeply with one another. But God is trustworthy, and yet many of us have a hard time trusting him. We struggle to trust Jesus with our lives when things happen that don't go right. When we experience loss or disappointment, it can be difficult to trust. But the question then is, what contributes to that lack of trust, right? Why, why do we struggle to trust God? Sometimes our lack of trust in God stems from a lack of trust we have for our earthly parents. I see this a lot. If we had a strained or difficult relationship with our uh, earthly father, very often it becomes difficult to trust our heavenly father. And I think one of the most difficult and straining issues in our relationships with God is very often when we have a strained or difficult relationship with the church or we've been hurt by someone in the church. Maybe we've been let down by a spiritual leader and it can be very difficult to not look at God as the source of that hurt or mistrust. It's, it's, it's easy to develop in those situations. Now, with all of that kind of in mind and in the background... I know that this passage of Romans that, that Mike did an incredible job of reading, actually, is long. And Paul says a lot of stuff here. But I want to submit to you this morning that the primary question that Paul is working through in this section of Scripture is the question of the trustworthiness of God. The trustworthiness of God. Paul actually uses a different word for trustworthiness. The word that he uses is faithfulness. Faithfulness. Will God be faithful to the promise he made to the people of Israel? When he called out to Abraham all those years ago and said to Abraham, I will make you the father of a great nation. You see, the whole Jewish faith, all of it, was predicated on that promise. Actually, it was predicated on the biblical word of a covenant, right? Which is a biblical word for promise. 
God said to Israel, I will be your God and you will be my people. And then he gave them the law, which was this code that the people were to live by. In this code, there were all these symbols of the special relationship that Israel had with God. There were food laws, was one of the symbols of the special relationship that the people of Israel had with God. There were the Ten Commandments. There was the sacrificial system. There was even the uh, physical, multiple physical signs of this relationship, but the primary one being circumcision. Now, imagine with me for a moment, just to kind of put ourselves into this passage of Scripture. Imagine with me that you are a Jewish person in the first century, and your whole faith and your whole worldview is predicated on this special relationship that you and your people, your lineage, have with God. Everything about your life has been about what it means to be part of this people, this group called Israel. You live, and you live different from everyone around you. Every, everyone else in the world, actually. You ate different than them. You looked different from them. You prayed different with, from them. You rested in a different way than everyone else did. You rested on the Sabbath when other people didn't. And all of that difference was a sign or, or a symbol of the special relationship you, your family, your people had with God. But then imagine with me for a moment that the whole system begins to fall apart. A number of Jewish people begin to say that the Messiah, the Savior, has come and that because of his death on the cross and his resurrection, now anyone, anyone can be a part of God's special people. And the new people who begin to come to faith in the Messiah, well, they aren't Jewish. And they don't follow all the same laws you do. They don't have all of the same uh, practices that you do. And, and they, don't they don't eat like you do. They don't rest like you do on the Sabbath. And the men are not circumcised. But yet, yet, the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit who fills your heart when you believed in Jesus, seems also to be present in their life. And though you have found this new life in Jesus, surely the promise that God made to, to his people, to Israel, has not been nullified, right? God is a faithful God, and he made a faithful promise, and that's not going away. God, God still made a covenant. So even though all these people who are not culturally Jewish are finding faith in the Messiah, surely what you need to do then as a part of God's people is teach them how to be a part of God's people, right? All these Gentiles who are coming in who know nothing of what it means or what it looks like to be God's people, well, they need to be instructed, don't they? So they need to be taught how to follow the Ten Commandments the same way you do. They need, to, they need to be instructed about how to eat the same way you eat. And they need, they're men, they need to be circumcised, of course, because it's a sign, it's a symbol of the fact that you belong to God. From your perspective as a Jewish person, as a follower and a believer in the Messiah, this makes total sense, doesn't it? God made a promise to his people. It makes total sense then that you would ex expect of those people who are coming in, those Gentiles, to live like God's people ought to live, right? Makes sense. All 
after all, all of God's promises are true and good. And God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God is faithful to his covenant, and he will not break it. But the problem we run into, right? All of these Gentiles in your church are telling you that they don't think they need to do those things, right? They don't, they don't want to eat what you eat. They don't, want to, they don't want to live how you live, right? And so you have these two groups of people in the church in Rome, both Jews and Gentiles, a part of the same church, both attempting to follow Jesus, both filled with the Holy Spirit, but struggling to figure out how to live together in these diverse ways. And as an Israelite in that setting, as a Jewish person in that setting, maybe you begin to ask this question. Is God not faithful to his promise? Has he abandoned us, the Jewish people, because we failed so badly? Because you know the stories, right? You know the ways in which the people of Israel had failed. And has he basically given up on us and turned his attention to these Gentiles instead? A question begins to rise up in your heart at this point. Have we been passed over? Maybe God is not faithful to his promise. Now, Paul is writing to Jews in the church in Rome in this section of Romans, and he is, I believe, addressing that very question. Is God at God's core faithful? Can he be trusted? Can God still be faithful and trustworthy, even though on the outside it seems like God has walked away from his promise because of how badly Israel has failed? I think that's part of, a big part of what Paul is tackling here. Now, you can see how this could have been a big problem, don't you? Because if God can simply walk away from his covenant, he's not trustworthy. He is not who he said he was, correct? This is what Paul is getting at in the beginning of chapter 3, uh, beginning in verse 1. He says this, What advantage, then, is there to being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very word of God. What if some were unfaithful, right? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all, Paul says. Let God be true and every human being a liar. Do you hear those rhetorical questions that Paul is asking at the beginning there? What advantage is there in being a Jew? Does the unfaithfulness of the Jewish people nullify the promises of God, his faithfulness? And Paul's answer is no. Emphatically, God is still faithful. But he needs to explain to them how it is that God is still faithful if it feels like the ground underneath them is shifting. Have you ever, any of you ever been in a moment in your life where it just felt like the ground underneath you was shifting and you had no way of knowing if, from the circumstances of your life, if God was going to be faithful or not. There's this, dis, there's this displasion of our minds and our hearts when big things kind of shake us, right? Have you ever lost a job, right? I remember in college, Ashley and I broke up. We were, she was a senior, I was a junior in college, and we broke up. And I just didn't think life would go on anymore, right? We figured it out four years later. But I just, didn't think it would, I just didn't think life would go on anymore. I had no vision. I had no direction. I couldn't see where to go. And I think Paul is writing to a group of Jewish people that are, they're discombobulated to the max. 
and they don't know how to move forward through this kind of new space. They've been, un- they've been wrong-footed in a sense, and they need to find firm grounding again. They need to be reassured that God is indeed faithful to his promise and that his plan is going forward with them as a part of it. So, uh, Paul then goes on this goes on to tell the story of the way in which God is going to be or has been faithful to his promise through the person of Jesus. But before he gets there, he has to go and level the playing field again. He does this in other parts of Rome. But in verses 11 through 18, he mashes a bunch of psalms together and talks about just how broken all of humanity, both Jew and Gentile alike, are broken. But then in verse 21 of chapter 3, he begins to shed light on the way in which God has been faithful to his people, even though things are changing. And they look different. Here's what he says, beginning in verse 21 of chapter 3. He said, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace, through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Now, I want to focus in on one passage of Scripture here, specifically on verse 22. I think we have that. The righteousness of Jesus is given through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ to all who believe. Do you you notice anything there? Anything different? I don't know which uh, translation of the Bible you're using, but if you're using a physical Bible, there's a, there's a notation by this passage of Scripture in verse 22. Uh, your Bible might read something like uh, the, not, excuse me, the righteousness given through Jesus in faith, in the faith of Jesus Christ for, to all who believe. In faith to Jesus Christ and all who, who believed. But this translation and the one I put up on the screen is a little different than that. It actually says through the righteousness of Jesus Christ to all who believe. Now, if you have a physical Bible, it probably does have a little notation there that this, this, this passage could be translated either way. Faith in Jesus Christ or faithfulness of Jesus Christ. There's a little bit of a nebulous uh, translation issue there. But I'm convinced that what Paul, based on the argument that Paul is making throughout the whole of this section of Romans, that he is saying that uh, it is the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, the the faithfulness that Jesus, the faithful life that Jesus walked out, that our faith is based on. Now, that might sound a little strange to you, but hear me out for a minute. This is probably the most important thing for you to see this morning. Paul is answering the question of how it is that God can still be faithful to his promise to Israel. 
How is it that God can still be trusted? And he says God can be trusted because when Israel was unable to be faithful to God, God sent the Messiah, Jesus, to be faithful for them. Does this make sense? Jesus is faithful where Israel is not faithful. This is how the scholar N.T. Wright puts it. He says, when what we needed, as we saw in chapter 3, was for God's faithfulness to be put into operation, not by scrapping the covenant plan to save the world through Israel and start again by some different route, but through, somehow, the arrival of a faithful Israelite who would offer God the faithful obedience which Israel should have offered but failed to do. Israel, called to be the faithful messenger of God's saving plan, had corrupted the vocation into mere privilege and had failed to pass the message on. Now we see the faithful Israelite Paul had in mind, Israel's representative, the Messiah, Jesus. You see, Jesus did for Israel what they could not do for themselves. He lived a faithful life. He was the perfect Israelite in a way that Israel was never meant to be. He had been faithful to the law, and he fulfilled the law completely. Actually, Jesus was what the whole story was about the whole time. And now, because Jesus has perfectly fulfilled the law, and because he has overcome the power of sin and death, we can know, Paul says, that God can be trusted. Because when you were unable to fulfill the law, God came in the person of Jesus and did it for you. That's why we know he can be trusted. He has fulfilled his promise, and he has kept the covenant. You see, you gave up your end of the covenant, right, by, through sin and through disobedience. And what did God do? He said, I'll take both ends, thank you very much, right? This is what God did through the person of Jesus. And all of the benefits then of this covenant, because of what Jesus did through his sacrifice, are now made available to everyone, Paul says. You see, God, through Christ, has been faithful to the promise that he made with Israel, even though Israel wasn't. And now, because of who Jesus is, and because of the way in which he completed this uh, narrative or this, uh, this story of Israel, in some ways the doors have been flung open to everyone. And now, things like symbols like circumcision and certain food laws are subsumed underneath the faithfulness of Jesus because he completed the story, as it were. And now what is required of those who, uh, of those who want to be a part of this, of this people, of, of the people of God, is faith in the faithfulness of Jesus. Now, I know this is technical, but I think it's what Paul is saying, and so I have to be honest with the text. Faith in the faithfulness of Jesus. Just to read it again, this is what he says. This righteousness is given through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ to all who believe, right? So the belief part is the faith part. So what you have to have in order to be a part of this new family, Paul says, is faith in the fact that Jesus has been faithful to all God outlined for the people of Israel through belief or faith in the faithfulness of Jesus. So, in Jesus we see the trustworthiness of God 
on display. We see God's trustworthiness on display because he did not abandon his people. And he was not untrue to the promise he made to Abraham. And so, what does this show us, right? What does this show us this morning? Part of the difficulty when you're reading a book like this is that you have to be true to what you think Paul is actually saying to the people he's actually saying it to. And then you need to kind of extrapolate out from that how in the world that could mean anything to us. But here's what I think it is. When we are unable to keep up our end of the bargain, Jesus will keep it up for us. Amen? This is what Paul will go on to say in the next few sentences of this same chapter. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood. To be received by faith, he did this to demonstrate his righteousness. There it is again, right? Because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and to justify and justifies those who have faith in Jesus. You see, in Jesus, God has supplied the needs of the world. Joss, if you could come up. In Jesus, Joss has supplied the needs of the, the entirety of the world. And he has supplied your needs as well. He has shown himself faithful to his promised relationship with the Jews. And Paul, and Paul has more to say about that, that God will continually not be giving the Jews up in any way. He continues to talk about this. And he has provided for all Gentiles, those apart from the law, a way to be made righteous and enfolded into God's big family through the person of Jesus. God's true faithfulness has now been revealed through Jesus, and everyone has access. This is what Paul is saying. And so here's where the rubber meets the road this morning, I think. You can trust God. He is trustworthy. And through faith in the faithfulness of Jesus, you can find a kind of redemption. Actually, not a kind of redemption, actual redemption. But today, I want to focus in on this trust idea. Kind of to bring it all the way back around to the beginning of our message. Because I don't believe, I don't believe, that we all believe 100% that God is trustworthy. I don't think, I don't think on an average day, that is a particularly easy thing for many of us. We are Americans. We have been taught to trust no one and to do it all of ourselves, right? But yet, the gospel requires a different kind of trust from us, doesn't it? It requires a humble, contemplative, Christ-looking trust that lays down our concern and, and looks to Jesus as one who is trustworthy. You see, the, the message of the gospel is that even when everything is spinning around us and everything feels broken and lost, we can find in the person of Jesus a stability, the rock of our salvation. 
even when things are going bad, and even when they continue to go bad, and even despite the fact that the world is broken and bad things happen all of the time, even in that place, we can have faith in a God who says he's overcome the world. And the, and the message of the Christian faith is that even when things do look ostensibly bad in my life, God has promised to work through those things to bring about his good plan and good purpose. Even if I lose my life, he has promised to work through that to bring about his good plan and good purpose. You see, faith in the faithfulness of Jesus is about the redemption of our souls, right? It's about belief that we are a sinner and that we are unable to get to, to God and that because of Jesus, we are able to come into close proximity again, to be made new, to have our sins forgiven. But none of that, none of that is a rubber stamp on our trust. I know people who believe in Jesus and have the hardest time trusting that he meant what he said, right? That he meant what he said. And that his character is what the scriptures say his character is. And so today, if you're in this place, and trust seems to be coming slightly more difficult to you in the last number of weeks, I want to pray for you. I want to pray for all of us, actually. So if you can, would you stand with, us, with me this morning? And just in a moment of reflection, I know that this is a kind of technical message because Paul, surprise, surprise, is a very technical writer. <laughs> and I have to do justice to the text when I preach it. But God, and I, and I stand here, you know, as a, as a pastor, as a representative of God, and I just want to say full force, like, God is trustworthy. He can be trusted. And in your moments of worry and in your moments of weakness and in those times of uncertainty and in those, time, those discombobulated times when you don't know which way is up, God can be trusted. And he wants you to turn to him when you are feeling all of the things that we feel in the world. When the world doesn't feel safe, Jesus is safe. When the world doesn't feel like it makes sense, Jesus makes sense.
trustworthy and loving arms of Jesus. And that you would help us to live out of the abundance of that place. Because Jesus is trustworthy. And our lives can safely rest in his hands. Father, would you help us to, as we go this week, and everywhere we go, and everywhere we are, if we run into something difficult, if we run into an anxious moment, if we run into a difficult time, God, would you call us back to this centered reality, this centered assurance that, that Jesus is trustworthy. there you can do that otherwise we'll just pester you until you do have a good day